any great length, but we covered emotions and our bodies for about like half of the class period. And we were just realizing how much our emotions affect our bodies and how much our bodies really affect our emotions and vice versa. And then we looked at some practical ways to take care of our bodies as they directly affect our emotions. Then we looked at relating to others through our emotions. We realized we're meant to be brought closer together in love as we engage in emotional experiences with others around us, as we weep with those who weep, as we rejoice with those who rejoice. And we do this as one body of Christ, right? We're all members of one body, so when we feel pain in one member of our body, we all feel pain. And when we experience joy, we all experience joy. And again, all of this is part of engaging in emotions, the emotional experience with others around us. And then finally, we covered that crucial question, why can't I control my emotions on demand, pretty much, right? And we learned that, you know, of course, outside of biological reasons, um, we can't control our emotions because our emotions are largely guided by what we love, right? Our emotions are guided by what we love. And we love like a thousand things, like a million things. And all of that is, of course, guiding how we feel. So unless what we love changes or the condition of what we love changes, our emotions won't change. So we got to get to the heart of the problem. What we love often impacts how we feel. This brings us to an important question here this morning. If our emotions are largely guided by what we love, how do we change what we love if we love the wrong thing, right? I think sometimes we find that we love the wrong thing too much. So how do we change that? And that's what we're going to begin to look at for the next three weeks or so. But as we work our way toward answering this question, we'll look at just two of the following things today. Two of the things. Uh, first, we'll look at two pitfalls of how our society engages with emotions all around us. And then we'll look at a third option, the better way, right? A path forward, engaging our emotions rightly. So any questions before we begin with today's lesson? All right. And if you have any questions that you want me to, like, address in the future classes, let me know. This is meant to be practical. It's meant to help us actually navigate just everyday emotions that we experience. And so if there's something, like, pressing on your mind, go ahead and ask me. Shoot me an email if you want. Uh, so that way I can perhaps include it in one of these classes. Okay, so beginning with two pitfalls of dealing with emotions. I don't think it's any surprise, uh, considering our current cultural context, uh, but there are these two pitfalls that our society often falls into, and we ourselves can fall into even both of them, like at the same time. So what are these pitfalls that we have to watch out for. On the one hand, there is emotionalism, okay? Emotionalism. Emotionalism is that emotions are what? Emotions are everything, right? They're absolutely everything. Or to put it another way, emotions are the most important thing that defines us. How I feel is all important. It comes before everything. And because of this, emotions are treated as the highest good that in, an individual could ever seek out. And so it's imperative then, right, that no one gets in the way of how you feel. To hurt someone's feeling 
or, or to not make a person feel affirmed in their feelings is to be seen as kind of a crime, right? Or an act of hate. Like, how dare you do that? And this is perhaps why in our society today there's so much value placed on being authentic, right? Authenticity is the name of the game today. Or being true to oneself. Um, it's also part of the reason that our society embraces sexuality as the core of our identity. And we can like kind of switch genders at will just based on how you feel, right? Um, this is why we also see, I think, uh, participation trophies for just about everything you could ever imagine, right? Because we're trying to be careful never to hurt a child's feeling, right? We're, we're prizing that above almost everything. You're good. We got to instill self-esteem. We got to make sure you feel okay about yourself. And to not do this is to be a terrible human being. But as we continue to evaluate emotionalism, it's also why a lot of people value just venting, right? Venting in our society, just getting it off your chest, letting off steam, just being honest, just saying what you feel without any regard for other people around you. So putting emotions and how we feel at the center of our being leads to all of our actions revolving around our feelings as the most important thing. So this is the air that we breathe in American society here today. And it's like being in an airport terminal with like a loud speaker blaring over all of other conversations that our, that our feelings are the most important thing in the room. So we've kind of seen this problem in secular society. I don't think we're, we're blind to this. I think we see it all around us. But emotionalism has, has often penetrated the church too. And maybe we don't see it there as much, but we should. And this is evidence as the church elevates, wrongly sometimes, the emotional experience to like the pinnacle, the end of church completely. And so many churches inadvertently pursue this as the greatest good, as the goal of the sermon is to ultimately feel, right, feel deeply convicted or inspired. The goal of the music is, is to feel a rush of ecstasy, right, or, or, or to, to have thanksgiving. And so this, this brings us to an important question we have to ask ourselves. Are your emotions truly the most important thing about you? Are they truly the most important thing that happens in church, in emotional experience? I mean, our world would tell us, yes, absolutely, 100%. That's why I go to church. That's why I go to band concerts. That's why I do all of these things. Yes. Well, what about for us? I mean, I don't think we want to say that emotions are unimportant, right? I mean, we're teaching a class on emotions, right? So we don't want to say it's unimportant. But at the same time, we don't want to say that emotions are all important either. Because we recognize that as Christians that emotions are not meant to be put ahead of everything else in our life. For instance, to put our emotions ahead of faithfulness to our obedience to God is completely wrong. I think we know that. And it's certainly wrong to put them ahead of our depth of relationship with God and others around us. And, and to put our emotions perhaps ahead of the feelings of others around us uh, is quite honestly often the opposite of what Scripture calls us to do. So they are not all important, but neither are they unimportant. I think we, we get that. And we have to be careful here because feelings, emotions are wonderful things. I think we all get that. We love that. 
we ought to earnestly seek experiences with God and his people, and we rejoice when sermons penetrate our hearts and when songs lift up our emotions to God. Like, I'm looking forward to Ben, you leading the music this morning. That's a wonderful thing. We should engage in that. But at the same time, an unhealthy emotionalism begins to make the emotion an end of itself, and that's, and that's where we can go wrong. We have to be careful for that. So as one woman puts it in the book, she felt an endless pressure at church just to kind of, you know, reach that next level of feeling and emotion, to have the next great emotional experience, and it was just exhausting. And so it's this cultural air that we want to avoid in our church when we're just trying to get people to feel things for the sake of feeling them. That, that's it. And so while churches make the center of their church about an emotional experience, we need to recognize that to have such an orientation could wrongly teach us to be ruled by our emotions rather than the word of God, and we have to watch out for that. So just an analogy for us to to kind of grasp this. Just as cookies are a terrible nutritional center for your diet, so emotions make a terrible central priority for your life. They're wonderful, they're nice, they're beautiful, but they cannot be the central priority of our life. So this is emotionalism, and I wanted to make sure this is one pitfall we have to guard against. But any questions before we talk about the, the opposite side of the spectrum here? Questions or comments? All right. If you have any questions, feel free to stop me whenever. The other pitfall then Stoicism. Probably no surprise there for you. This is the other pitfall we can fall into. If emotionalism makes emotions everything, then Stoicism does the opposite and treats emotions as if they're nothing. Emotions are to be avoided. They're they're dangerous. And from this point of view, emotions are to be treated as a stray, rabid dog that just kind of wandered into your living room, right? It's dangerous. It has no business being there at all, right? It's to be shot on sight. Emotions are dangerous then and not to be trusted at all. And given the way our, our culture kind of worships emotions as God, it's, it's no wonder why some Christian circles have often like reacted with this opposite response instead, right? We recognize the dangers of emotionalism, and we instead swing into this ditch instead. And so Stoicism portrays uh, the classic image of the guy who just kind of sucks it up and takes it, right? He just takes the pain and keeps moving forward. Um, it's, it's the classic blood-spattered hero from the movies that you often watch in action films, right? And so while the cattle may be straying and the bad guy is just showering his position with a hell of gunfire, and, you know, he may have just lost his best friend, he, he's not going to be stopped, right? He's just going forward. And the modern, of course, slightly more sensitive version of this hero will even have, like, like a tear, like in the corner of his eye for a lost buddy before he then turns toward the enemy and, like, charges into the gates of hell, right? That's like stoicism. The, the implicit message is clear. Strong, independent men and women are radically in control of their emotions, right? Strong, independent men and women are radically in control of their emotions. And when our hero does express emotion, 
It's usually just like a moment of silence, right? Before getting back to what ought to be done. So just as the church has its struggle with overvaluing emotions too much, so the church has its own version of stoicism. Christian stoicism tends toward the kind of problems we highlighted earlier on from week one, where one is immediately to repent of any negative emotion in oneself. And if you see negative emotions in others around you, what do you have to do? What are you supposed to do? You, you rebuke it in them, right? You tell them, cut it out, right? Stop that. Emotions, you know, you don't, you're not supposed to have negative emotions as a Christian. And so we squash all negative emotions immediately before taking the time to, to examine them. Instead, emotions that are negative are often dead on arrival. And so the driving theological idea that Christians often use to justify this type of behavior um, is, is God's sovereignty. Quite often, it's God's sovereignty that we use to squash our negative emotions. So if God ordained this suffering to happen, right, and he, he works all things for our good, then the only reason to feel bad is that I just don't have enough faith. That's the only reason to feel bad. I just don't have enough faith. And sadly, I think this is how many Christians perceive reality for themselves, kind of, in our circles all around us. The author gives one example of a woman in her early 30s who captured this problem all too well. Uh, she lived through one of the worst things a parent could go through as she lost her only child. And after two and a half years uh, of fighting cancer, this baby, uh, she died. She died from cancer. And while many in her church expressed sorrow and compassion for her, she, she talked about that pressure, you know, to come into church uh, the very next Sunday with like a smile on her face so that everyone could see how good God is when life is hard, right? And, and I think a lot of Christians can kind of relate to this feeling and pressure we sometimes put on ourselves. And, and it comes from this idea we think that negative emotions have no place in our life at all. And so instead of the church being a place of comfort for the woman who is in anguish, the church instead became a place where only good emotions were allowed, okay? Positive emotions like joy, happiness, and thanksgiving. And so it's a place where faith is supposed to conquer all of our negative emotions like immediately. And so it's good to know here that this shouldn't be the case for us. The church should instead be a hospital where the hurt find healing, where those who are feeling deep pain and suffering do not feel forced to put on a fake face when it's just not the case. And so the great tragedy here, I think, is that this kind of thinking warps God's sovereign control over everything wrongly, and it dismisses the vital importance of negative emotions that we are meant to have as Christians. Because negative emotions, as we talked about in weeks past, right, such as sadness, anger, grief, these are the only right responses sometimes to a broken world that we live in. And it's wrong then to dismiss God's good gift to us with this response. Sadness, anger, and grief are the appropriate response in the face of great evil. 
And so again, we have to be careful then not to fall into this dish and to see it only as a negative thing and to dismiss it out of hand. So they are an aid then in our obedience to God. And they're a constant occasion to connect with God and one another around us. As we enter into the grief with others, we're drawn closer together. As we're angry for others and the injustice they experience, it brings us closer together as the body of Christ. There's a proper place for them. And so in our theology, we need to carve out room for sadness, fear, anger, guilt, shame, and dismay, and other like negative emotions that are actually good and appropriate in the right context. Because without these negative emotions, our faith often becomes lopsided, right? Aaron was talking about like, how we need to have the three forms, right? Same is true here if we don't have a place for negative emotions. We become like a car with like, wheels on only one side of it and not the other. And you're not going to get very far without having both um, on that car. So these are the two pitfalls we need to avoid as Christians moving forward and how we often deal with them in our society. Uh, but, before, but, but before we go on to the right answer, of course, are there any questions or comments on these two pitfalls? I want to make sure I get plenty of time for questions. Last week I felt like I spoke for 54 minutes. That's not good. So <laughs> we're not going to do that today. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we automatically assume it's true because I feel it. it's true. Right. I feel like you hurt me. Repent doesn't matter the reasons behind it at all. Just It's a very shallow level. They're, yeah, they, they, they focus on the emotions while thinking deeply about why it is they're feeling what they're feeling. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not saying that's true. Yeah, you can't challenge that. You're not allowed to challenge how I feel. Right, whereas Christian, well, we're really going to get to this, but getting to that next level. Okay, I feel hurt. Now what? What do I do? Do I just immediately assume it's true 100% I go blame the other person and call them to repent? That's how our society deals with it. In a large part. Yeah, that's good. We'll, 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 I think we're going to get more into what you're looking for in the, in the third option. Ben? About this thing over here. Yeah, you, so you can kind of pick up on these things when people, as you know them, as a holistic person. And I think, yeah. Yeah. Certain areas of their life. Right, right. And I think that's, and we all compartmentalize often. Like, I just... Uh, and again, maybe it's just because we don't love that thing very much or we have a defense mechanism that we built. Like, I have a lot of those from my, my childhood that I had to break through. Um, so, yeah, it could be a whole host of things. Yeah, so again, like I was saying, you can fall into these, both of these camps for different parts of your life for sure. Like, you could be a stoic, right, here at church when you're worshiping on Sunday and then at the football game, man, you are the most emotional, excited person in the world. And I, I'm going to suggest that there might be something wrong maybe there with with going on in the heart, maybe, perhaps. So just throwing that out. So again, yeah, we just have to be evaluating these things holistically over our life. That's good. Ethan? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a both and. Both and, that's right, yeah. That's, that's good. And that maybe requiring some nuance to try to flesh that out more. But stoic, yeah, being radically in control of those emotions, suppressing them when I have to. And often, yeah, the, the I don't care factor is actually a part of that, too, when it shouldn't be. Good. All right. We'll keep moving on here to the third path, a better path forward. We don't want to fall into either of these ditches, right? We're trying to walk the middle road, and I think that's what we want to do here as we move forward. Engage. We want to engage our emotions as a middle path with God. We want to take a deliberate middle road between the emotionalism of our day and age and the stoicism of our day and age. 
and engaging our emotions with God. And to engage our emotions means this. When an emotion comes on your radar, when you're starting to feel something, you look at it, you, you see what you find, right? And then, and not before, you decide how to respond, okay? And so the beauty of engaging your emotions in this way is that it doesn't judge your emotions ahead of time as either good or bad, right? You're allowing yourself to engage with it. You move closer to your emotions. You explore it, and you prepare yourself to deal with whatever you uncover. And we do this, right, because as we've discussed in previous weeks, there are good and bad negative emotions. And there are good and bad positive emotions, right? And so it's of critical importance that we figure out what is going on with that emotion before we work to shut it down, right, or amplify that emotion flowing from our heart. Now, I think we're used to maybe doing this more so with, like, our thoughts and behaviors than we are with our emotions. But we, we should treat both joy and anger as potential threats uh, with our emotions, right? They both could be good. They both could be bad. It depends on the context, and so the question then is, how do we then engage our emotions as we should? And I think there are four hopeful steps here that we can do, that we can practically do, uh, to help us engage our emotions rightly. So first, we identify the emotion that you're experiencing. Some of you are like, yeah, no duh, that's easy, do that all the time. Um, but you would be surprised, okay? And I found this among many men they just don't seem to be able to do this step at all, like identify their emotion. Like, what are, what are you feeling? Like, I don't know. And so we often have trouble describing how we feel. Maybe that's not you, but there are many that do. And so we're just trying to put, put words to the feelings that we're experiencing. And it's not necessary that we need, like, a specific label, like joy or happiness or, or, or sadness, but we can describe our emotions in terms of you know, I'm just feeling off today. Like, I'm, I'm feeling off. There's something off. I'm not sure what it is. Or something's up, but I'm not sure. I'm feeling something, but I'm just not sure how to explain it, and I don't know why. And these are all perfectly valid ways of identifying emotions as you experience them. And believe it or not, there are some who have never thought about this at all. Like, they've just gotten to such a habit that they don't even recognize they're feeling things when they are. So this is a good first step. We can't take it for granted. <clears throat> so the first step, again, is nothing magical or novel, right? This isn't magical. Um, but we are simply trying to describe your reaction in a world that God has put you in. And if you need help identifying, you know, the emotion you're experiencing, ask a friend, ask your spouse, you know, what emotion is it that I'm portraying today? You know, I'm like, I know I'm feeling something, but I'm not sure. You ask, ask others around you and, and try to get help in that regard. So in taking this first step, then, we're simply identifying our emotions as the Scripture often does for the characters in the Bible, right? All the time. Um, as we look at the Gospels, it tells us that Jesus was sorrowful and troubled as his death approached, just like over and over again. It tells us that Jesus was thankful to his Father for making the Gospel accessible to even little children. And of course, the Psalms are filled with emotions, right? Psalm 102.4 my heart is struck down like grass and has withered. 
or, or I am weary with my, my crying out, or Psalm 9-2, I will be glad and exult in you. And all over the Psalms, all over the Bible, as you pay attention, we're identifying the feelings that we're experiencing. And so we want to do the same. We want to begin by simply identifying what it is that you are feeling before God. This takes us to the second step, then. We examine those feelings and emotions. Once you've identified your emotion, this next step is not rocket science. Okay, this isn't rocket science. Look at the emotion, turn it around, and see what you can learn about it. And here we want to see what our emotions are communicating and really motivating us to do. We want to see how they might help us relate to others around us or or turn us toward God and worship. And we need to examine our emotions considering these categories. So as you evaluate your emotions, as you examine them, that is, what are they telling you that you value and care about deeply? What are they telling you about your relationships to others around you? What are they energizing you to do? And and what is their effect on your worship of God here? Is it turning you toward God? Or is your emotion turning you away from him? And so again, all of these questions and more we want to be asking, like, why am I feeling the way that I'm feeling? What am I reacting to? Why is this hitting me so hard? Why isn't this affecting me the way it usually does? And how is this emotion making me want to behave? So we're just examining it, right? Now let's look at a hypothetical example here together. Suppose that you identify your feeling of anger one day, right? You're just feeling angry one day. And as you examine this emotion of anger, you observe that you are mad that your wife broke your lawnmower, right? Uh, And when you first found out, you didn't say anything. You didn't say anything at all. But you've been carrying around this anger ever since, and you weren't very talkative at dinner like you typically are. Inside, you kept thinking, She knows I always get to the lawn on Saturday. Why couldn't she just leave it alone? And so so what can you learn about yourself from this? Here here are first possibilities. A few possibilities. First, your anger is leading you to pull back from your wife as you talk less than you usually do and aren't as warm as you typically are. Second, your emotion is like straining your relationship to your wife And third, you may find that what you value is efficiency and comfort. And as you lose or waste time trying to fix this lawnmower, it pulls time and money away from other things that you wanted to accomplish and enjoy. And so you find, in this instance, by examining the anger, that you value having things go smoothly in your life like most Americans in our society. And finally... Your frustrated thoughts that run on without end suggest that right now you care more about the inconvenience brought to you than the good intentions of your wife who tried to do something to make your life better. You are more concerned with the outcome than you are with her good motives. And so this is a hypothetical situation of of just one of many ways that this kind of situation could play out. And again, to state the obvious here, it's important to recognize that the same situation could go very, very differently, right? For example, your anger could instead come from feeling insulted, right? You could feel insulted that she tried to do this. She must not think you are man enough 
to do your own yard work, and so you're just offended. Okay, that would be me. And this is, if I'm being honest, I'm like, why did you do that? Do you not think I'm a man? You know, complete ego trip, right? Like, so um, it could be a lot of reasons like that. It could be you're angry with yourself for not getting the lawn done last week and creating a situation where she felt she had to. You could be angry because she didn't ask you something before jumping into a project. Uh, you could be angry for her not asking because she always asks, and now this inconvenience wouldn't, wouldn't have happened if she just stuck to the script. Or, you know, you could be angry at the lawnmower's manufacturer for designing such a poorly designed product, right? You could be angry for all of these reasons and more, and probably a combination, right? And again, maybe it isn't even anger that you felt in this situation, right? Maybe you're joyful in this situation, right? Maybe you're joyful because after some conflict, she's now trying to take the initiative to try and do something to help you without being asked and wanted to surprise you with this gift. So maybe you're joyful. Maybe you're not even angry. So again, we have to continue to examine all of our emotions in these situations before responding. We're trying to get to the bottom of it. And we're not trying to determine yet whether it's good or bad, right? We're just trying to examine why it is that I feel what I feel. We're trying to get under the hood. And so again, whether what you see is a problem or not, you want to become as aware as possible of what you are caring about, how you are relating to others around you, and what you are, of course, are doing in response to those emotions. So after identifying and examining them, we move on to evaluating, evaluating them. And it's at this point that we're ready to take the next step of figuring out which aspects of what you are feeling are good and godly and bad and sinful or self-destructive. And, and this can be difficult to do at times, right? So let's continue with the lawnmower example where the husband is angry. I don't think that the husband has to feel bad about his desire to use his Saturday efficiently or his desire for the machine to work properly. Part of human suffering since Adam and Eve sinned is that our labor is set back by the deterioration of this world. It's set back by thorns and thistles, right? And it's okay, right? It's okay to feel anger about the curse that we all experience and live. The Bible calls this a curse for a reason, and it's okay to be angry at the thorns and thistles of a world broken by sin and evil. So again, even anger at a broken lawnmower can actually be a thirst for God to redeem all things. But with that being said, when freedom from inconvenience, right, freedom from inconvenience is driving the man's reaction rather than the appreciation for his wife's efforts to try to help, something is off, okay? It's okay to feel anger about a broken world and setbacks, but it is not okay to direct this anger toward your wife in such a situation or to let this anger supersede her good intentions. The fire of anger needs to be controlled and directed carefully, which is why scripture often commands us to be, to be angry, but don't sin. Anger has a a way of just engulfing everything it comes in contact with. And so when anger then drives us to withdraw from our wife or to be passive-aggressive to punish her, 
It loses its Godward momentum and instead makes the problem of sin all the worse. And so as our God calls us to love what he loves and hate what he hates, we need to recalibrate our emotions then to God's in such scenarios. And so what we're aiming for in evaluating our emotions is this. It's okay to be upset about what upsets God. And it's okay to be glad about what makes him happy. But when you find yourself ignoring what pleases God, like the wife's good intentions, and acting in ways that displease God by, you know, passive aggressiveness toward your wife, you need to evaluate your emotions as revealing something wrong in your heart. So this is the third step then that we need to do, and it's something our world is terrible at doing at all. They just assume that their emotions, without any evaluation, are good, right, and true. And what we're saying as a counteractment to that is that that's not always true. We need to evaluate them carefully with a microscope and see what's going on. And so after evaluation, then we go to engaging or acting. After knowing what you are feeling, have named what you are feeling as best as you can, and have decided which aspects of the feelings are good and which are bad, then you act. And while the options to act are basically endless, there are two basic responses to emotions that we ought to consider after careful evaluation. On the one hand, we want to embrace and nurture the loves of our hearts and behavior that are good. We want to enhance those, right? And then on the other hand, we want to resist and starve the loves and actions that are bad. So after carefully evaluating which parts are good, which parts are bad, we feed, enhance the good, and we starve the bad, okay? You can kind of see both ends of the spectrum that we're, we're counteracting towards the Bible, uh, modifying according to the Bible. And we'll look at how to do this more next week, feeding right emotions and starving bad ones. We'll look at that more next week. But again, this does not mean that we are focusing primarily on changing the emotions themselves. Instead, we want to let the evaluation of our emotions drive us to act in a way that will have an impact on the deep loves and treasures of our hearts. So let's bring it back to the lawnmower situation one more time. First, it might be right for him to pray that the lawnmower would be fixed easily and cheaply. Second, it might be good for him to express frustration with the broken equipment to God and voice his disappointment about the negative impact on his Saturday. After that, his evaluation might lead him to see that his heart might be in the wrong place, caring more about his comfort and convenience than his wife's love for him or spiritual growth. And so in examining this, uncovering it, this realization could potentially lead him then to perhaps repent um, about this heart problem and to examine his heart all the more closely before God. And then, of course, finally after, you know, cooling down for a few minutes, he probably needs to talk with his wife. You know, he needs to realize the change in relationship it's caused with his wife for the negative and the bad. And he needs to apologize to her for being short and reassure her that it's going to be okay. He should thank her for trying to take care of something for him. And it might even be appropriate for him to make the gentle request that, you know, going forward, it might be nice if you, you know, just ask me about that before doing that. Um, and again, of course, there are multiple other things he could do, such as reflecting on passages of Scripture that help him value those things which last for eternity more and not the things that will pass away. 
And, and so again, this is just one example of how this could play out over like thousands of different ways, millions of different ways this could play out. Uh, but any questions with this very general way of how Christians ought to engage with their emotions? Identify, examine, evaluate, then act and engage. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the reality is to go through all these steps in the moment is easier said than done, right? You, you've been in emotional, heated situations, and it's often that you just already, you, already, you went from straight to not identifying anything and just engaging with how you felt before evaluating it, right? We do it all the time. I get angry, boom, I'm doing something right away before actually examining. And you're right, and, and it's after that fact, after, okay, whoa, I just, just reacted the way I did for what, some reason. I need to go back. Okay, why, why did I feel that way? Why did I feel angry? Examining, evaluating, okay, I responded wrongly. I need to go apologize to my wife or my children. And you're right, but this is just a way for us to, even after the fact, go back and think through it. So, yeah, this is nice in theory, but we know all too often we immediately jump from experiencing emotions to acting without even thinking about why that is. Um, so this is just a way to help us get under the hood of our, our engine, our, our, our car, more to speak. Yep, good. I am going to cut this last part because it's already 9.45. Um, all of these steps, these emotions, all these steps, we are meant to engage these emotions with God. So pour out your hearts to God as you go through these steps in every single one of them. Ask God to help you understand why you are feeling the way you are, examining what's going on in the heart, and then to engage appropriately. Um, because this is what we see the psalmist doing all the time. He pours out his heart to God and he goes to God with all of his emotions in all of these steps. Um, and that's kind of the gist of uh, the last part here. But engage your emotions with God. And that's what makes us primarily different from both Stoicism and emotionalism, which try to deal with your emotions apart from God. Uh, next week, again, we're going to be looking at feeding good emotions and starving bad ones, how we can do that. And then we'll be dealing with the important issue of relational conflict, right? How do we navigate our emotions when dealing with relational conflict? A very important thing we need to talk about, because uh, I think we all have relational conflict at one point or another in our life, right? We do. It's all the time. So we'll look at that next week and ask God to help us then uh, to relate rightly to one another. Father, we thank you for, again, your, your goodness to us. We ask that even as we've looked at our emotions here this morning, that you'd help us to engage better with them, seeing them as a good gift from you. Help us, Lord, to then live in light of our emotions to the glory of God. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.